Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 309 of the podcast. It is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Thursday, October 22nd, 2020, people. I hope everybody is having a great week. And let me just say this. Sometimes as I sit here, as I prepare for this show, I have my little segments. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about that. And then something crazy breaks, and I have to completely blow up the show. And that is something that happened today on late Wednesday into Thursday as we actually got mega college hoops news. And I'm actually going to lead with college hoops on this show for you football fans. Go ahead and fast forward to the middle of the show. But for the college hoops fans... A mega piece of news as Kentucky gets Olivier Saar eligible. For people who do not know, he is a player that I believe to be the best transfer in college basketball this offseason. There had been some talk about would he get eligible, would he not. It becomes official, and with that, Kentucky is now, in my opinion, a consensus top five team and a, a team that has no doubt about it, national championship content, uh, contender ability. So we will lead the show with Olivier Saar. We will transition very briefly into the Big 12 SEC Challenge, another college hoops topic. We will then transition from there to football. Big Ten football is back this week. We will preview some of the big games. We'll talk a little bit about the SEC schedule I'll give out some college uh, football picks. Can't lie, have not finished them yet, but I have two or three that I'll drop on you. And we will wrap and get out of here on that goofy Odell Beckham story, which I can't lie, I just love. I just love the fact that Odell Beckham is now banned from LSU. And we will talk a little bit about that. I should mention, by the way, on the back end, one of my favorite guests that I have ever had on this show returns, that is ESPN's Cole Kublik. If you remember, Cole Kublik came on this show back in July, and we talked a lot about the landscape of college football in that moment in time. Cole and I were two of the people fighting for college football at a time when it felt like the sport was not going to be played 
Thought it'd be fun to have him back. Thought it'd be fun to do kind of a pseudo-victory lap as the Big Ten gets set to come back this weekend. Of course, the Pac-12 and MAC coming in the coming weeks. So that is the rundown. Great show. Really excited. Cannot wait to get talking. So let's get into it. Before we get started, I want to remind you, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You could do it on iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, please make sure to subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, where you listen, all of those great things. And finally, if you're not following on social media, shame on you. Uh, Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter, Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. If you have any questions for the show, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. And with that said, people, there is no more time to waste. Let's get into it. And if I sound excited, let me just tell you this. One of the great things, I, so I love talking sports, right? Like, like it's my passion. It's what I love to do. It's what, uh, uh, you know, frankly, what I think I was born to do, to be honest. Many of you would disagree, but uh, I love talking sports. I love having this platform, however many of you decide to listen to me on any given day, whatever. I love to talk about the big topics in sports, and there is nothing better than when you're prepping for a show, you feel good about it, but you don't know what you're going to do, how am I going to lead it, what's the hot topic, and a topic from heaven falls into your lap, and that is exactly what happened on Wednesday night. True story, I'm preparing for this show, I'm getting ready to do this show, and as I'm getting ready to do this show, uh, I see in passing that uh, a Kentucky basketball releases a quick little 10-second video with their star center, their star transfer, Olivier Saar, uh, and I really don't think much of it. And then, right as I, I'm not even kidding, I am ready to press record on this show, my intern, Zach, texts me and says, Saar, eligible, finally. And it was like a light bulb deja vu moment, like, oh, okay, I guess that's what that video was about. And so literally, as I was getting ready to hit record, uh, I had to stop because the big topic of the day, I believe, in college sports is the eligibility of Olivier Saar. He is officially declared eligible for the University of Kentucky. And what I will tell you is, Kentucky fans who are listening, bear with me. I'm doing this all off the top of my head. No notes prepared. So please forgive me as I go in a lot of different directions on this topic, but it is huge. And it's huge because of the reason that I mentioned off the top. Over the course of the summer, Obviously, the transfer market becomes the big topic and story in college basketball. And when Olivier Saar entered the transfer portal, I said, this is the best transfer in college basketball right now. He played at Wake Forest, played at the highest level, legitimate seven-footer, a guy that I believe, frankly, has a a future in the NBA, but a legitimate seven-footer, was third-team All-ACC last year, and really came on strong. He's a guy that's still relatively new to basketball, and so people would sit there and say, well, if he's a junior, how good can he be? Well, Not everybody grew up in America with a basketball in their hands at two years old. Olivier Saar is from France. He's a little bit newer to basketball. And really, over his three years at Wake Forest, he really developed into a really good college player that I believe with one more year has a chance to play in the NBA. 
And so when he entered the transfer portal, I said, this is the best player in this transfer portal right now, and he commits to Kentucky. And so for people who do not know the full backstory, essentially what happened was this. He was not a grad transfer. He was a junior. He had one year of eligibility left. And there's this kind of arbitrary SEC rule that basically says that if you're not a grad transfer and you only have one year of eligibility left, you are forced to sit out a year if you come to an SEC school. And so in theory, Olivier Saar had already been cleared to play by the NCAA, but there was an SEC rule that forbid him from being eligible. And what happened last week, my understanding is that Last week, if you remember the story, I don't even think I talked about it, but the NCAA has basically said that all winter sport athletes, because of this pandemic, get an extra year of eligibility. It happened last year with spring athletes. It's now happening with fall and winter athletes, where if you're playing this year and you want to sit out or you don't want to play or whatever, we're just going to give you an extra year of eligibility. And so when that rule went into place, what that meant was that, in theory, Olivier Saar now has two years of eligibility left. Once he has two years of eligibility left, you can't really play the card if you're the SEC office of this old archaic rule about having to sit out a year. And so I think the SEC kind of in, uh, and I'm doing this, and we might get information at some point in the future that tells us a little bit more of what the SEC's thought process was. But my real thought process was very simply that I just believed that once that rule was changed where everyone got an extra year of eligibility, where this kid got two years, that the SEC was going to clear him. Because at this point, why are you going to fight the PR fight? We're getting the one-time transfer rule next year anyway. And so it was a real zero-sum situation for the SEC. They had nothing to gain by fighting for this, I guess, in theory, other than fight, the only thing they really had to gain was not pissing off the other 13 SEC teams. And why would the other 13 teams be pissed off? It's because this kid is really good. And so why this is so important is because of what I said a minute ago. He is a big-time player who is transferring from one Power 5 conference to another, and he has experience playing at the highest level in college basketball. Again, a third-team All-ACC member who was successful at Wake Forest, played his best basketball down the stretch last year during his final season at Wake Forest. And of course, when he decided to transfer, it only came after Danny Manning was fired. But again, really played his best basketball late, uh, dropped 25 points in a win over Duke late in the season, 30 against Notre Dame, and this kid is really good. And I don't want to put unrealistic, completely unfair expectations on him. But one, like I said, I think he's a continually developing player. I think he is going to be better this year than he was last year. And as I said, when he uh, transferred to Kentucky, for people who did watch Kentucky last year, he reminds me a lot of Nick Richards. Great energy, plays hard. The thing Nick Richards had by the time that he left was that little 15 to 18 foot jumper. I don't know if Olivier Saar has that, but he's got all the skill, all the athleticism, all the shot blocking, and any Kentucky fan listening knows this. 
is that he is exactly the missing piece that that team needed to have ultimate success this year, right? If you don't know Kentucky's roster, it is really young, but it is really talented. They have two star, star, star wing players, one named B.J. Boston, the other named Terrence Clark, both of whom were McDonald's All-Americans last year. They have a freshman point guard named Devin Askew. They have a couple power forward type guys, Isaiah Jackson, who's a freshman, Keon Brooks, who's a sophomore. But the one thing they were missing was rim protection, was a veteran presence, and a guy like Olivier Saar. And so with Olivier Saar, they're the, they're the complete puzzle, right? They now, in addition to scoring on the wing with B.J. Boston and Terrence Clark, in addition to having two capable point guards, Devin Askew and Davion Mintz, another transfer who I didn't mention, in addition to the low post presence of Isaiah Jackson and all those guys, they now have that rim protector, shot blocker, rim runner, whatever. And I think when you factor in Olivier Saar with the pieces that they have, it's like I said, they are, in my opinion, a consensus top five team, and they are right up there with Kentucky, in, or excuse me, with Tennessee in terms of the top two teams in the SEC. Now, listen, will, may it take a while to get going for Kentucky? Of course. Calipari even said it the other day in that weird video that he did where he's in the practice gym, pulls down his mask, starts talking. But if you watch the video, he said, like, look, we got a really tough out-of-conference schedule. They're obviously going to play Kansas in the out-of-conference, Notre Dame. They're going to play Louisville, obviously, with the Chris Mack stuff. And so it's not. I'm not saying they're going to go undefeated, but I do believe that this team has the highest ceiling of any team since the 2017 team that had Bam Adebayo and De'Aaron Fox. And I think defensively, it's going to be their calling card because this kid, Olivier Saar, is a special rim protector. The kid, Isaiah Jackson, is a special rim protector. And when you have those two guys at the rim, I just don't know how you score on Kentucky. And so I don't want to belabor the point. I don't want to oversell this kid. He's not, um, you know, he's not, uh, he's not I'm trying to think, uh, you know, whatever. Greg Oden, he's not Anthony Davis. But he is a really, 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 really good college basketball player, and he fits a need for the University of Kentucky. And I just think this is a game changer. When I look at this season, there are some really good teams at the top with Kentucky, be it Villanova, be it um, Baylor's really good, Gonzaga's really good. But Kentucky is right there, man, because the kid B.J. Boston is really special. Terrence Clark, I, I tweeted this out the other day, but I am hearing Terrence Clark has as much upside as any player Kentucky has had in a while, a 6'8", 6'9", freshman who can handle the ball, create on his own, and he's kind of that mentally tough kind of alpha dog that Kentucky needs. And so I think this is a great day for Kentucky, obviously, but I also think it's a great day for college basketball. The more good players that we have, the more good players in this sport, the more good teams in this sport, the better it is for the sport as a whole. And I think what's so interesting, and I think it's something that people are just starting to kind of wrap their heads around now, I think it's going to be a big November, December, and January for college basketball because there's really going to be nothing competing with it in the middle of the week. Remember, the NBA is done until at least January, and the NBA is talking about realistically pushing all the way back to the middle of January. And so when you talk about college basketball opening the week before Thanksgiving, the week of Thanksgiving, having all of November, all of December, all of January, that is a great stage for college basketball, and it's a great stage for a program like Kentucky 
which is always going to draw interest, right? There's only so many topics that, that, that we can, there's only so much that the national shows can talk about with the Cowboys and with uh, Russell Wilson and with Patrick Mahomes. And like at some point, they're going to want to talk about something else. And so I think college basketball having the stage on its own in November, December, January is great for the sport. And I think it's going to be really fun to watch. And I think it's going to be really fascinating. And I think Kentucky is now a team that is right there with everybody else. Now, like I said, it's going to take time. This team is still young. There are no exhibition games. There are no practice games to get better. And so I will be fascinated to, uh, to see how it all plays out. But I am so, so, so excited. And like I said, I think it's good for college basketball. I think it's good for the sport in general when Kentucky is elite. And they're going to be elite this year, man. I'm telling you, this kid Olivier Saar is good. Really quickly, I do want to talk about very briefly uh, in the college basketball space, the SEC Big 12 Challenge, okay? I know for most of you, it doesn't move the needle, but for college basketball, there are some really, really, really fun matchups, and for people who don't maybe remember, the SEC Big 12 Challenge is one day in usually late January, early February, where the two conferences get together. 10 games across the sport, and we've gotten some really good games in that kind of showcase event the last few years. Kentucky at Texas Tech last year, uh, Kentucky at West Virginia a few years ago, uh, Kansas has hosted Kentucky, vice versa. We had Baylor at Florida, and the matchups for this year's event were announced on two Wednesday, excuse me, and a lot of really, really, really good matchups. So first of all, I want to just talk about some of the matchups, what they all mean, all that stuff. We might as well start with Kentucky since we just spent a ton of time on them, but they will host Texas in a game that is fascinating for a few reasons. First of all, Kentucky just stole Texas's best assistant coach, Jay Lucas, uh, Jay Lucas excuse me. Uh, so Jay Lucas, this will be the Jay Lucas uh, revenge game. Two, Texas's top recruit, Greg Brown wanted, Kentucky certainly wanted him. They almost got him. And I think if Shaka Smart hadn't been fired, or if Shaka Smart had been fired, they might have gotten him. But I also think this is interesting because Texas is a really good team. Texas, how about this? They return their top 12 scorers off of last year and at a top 10 national recruit in Greg Brown. And so what's fascinating to me about this game is this is the last stand for Shaka Smart. This is a team with Shaka Smart. Shaka Smart has one of the probably 10 to 12 most talented rosters in college basketball. If he can not only get to the NCAA tournament, but win some games once he gets there, then it's over. He's just, it's never going to happen at Texas. But this is a really talented Texas team. They were on the fringe of my top 25. I left them out only because I simply said to myself, I don't trust Shaka Smart, but this is his best team. This is one of the 10 to 12 most talented teams on paper, and that will be a fascinating game. Obviously, staying in that vein, you talk about talent, you talk about top 10 to 15 most talented teams. The signature game that I think everybody's excited about is Kansas at Tennessee. And listen, we all know Kansas's backstory. First of all, I'm not going to get into the Bill Self's thing here. I crush Bill Self every chance I get, but he's a really good coach. And I do think they're interesting with Kansas for people who don't remember kind of the backstory on Kansas. They were the prohibitive favorites going into last year's NCAA tournament. Devon Dotson goes pro, Adoka Azabuke graduates. And so this is kind of really an interesting Kansas team where I think they have a lot of interesting pieces. 
I don't know if they're a great team, though. With that said, I'm not going to bet against Bill Self because whatever you think of him as a dude, whatever you think about him as his relationship with Adidas, I can tell you right now, that dude is a really good coach. So I think they'll be ready to go. I think they're going to play well. And I think they'll be interesting. They go to a Tennessee team that is getting a lot of preseason buzz. Let me tell you this. I, I don't want to take too much credit here, but I think I was kind of the first person that really was like, Tennessee has a chance to be really good next year. Because if you remember, dating back to last year, they were a fringe kind of outside bubble team that beat Kentucky at Rupp Arena, but they lost some close road games where if they had won one or two of them that they had control of and fell apart, they would have been on the bubble to make the NCAA tournament. Had a big lead at Auburn. Auburn comes back to win. Had a big lead at South Carolina. South Carolina comes back to win. Tennessee wins those two games. They're probably in the NCAA tournament. Of course, the NCAA tournament got canceled, but I bring it up to say Tennessee basically returns everybody. Eve Pons in the front court, John Fulkerson in the front court, Santiago Viscovi in the back court. Uh, we talked a lot about him with Rick Barnes when he was on the podcast earlier this spring. So shout out to Rick Barnes, friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, but that is going to be a really fun matchup as well. I have both those teams in my top 15 nationally going into next year, uh, and I think it's going to be a really good matchup. Third matchup that I really want to highlight. LSU hosting Texas Tech, and you talk about two talented teams. I'm not exaggerating when I say, and I know I've said this a few times now, I think you're talking about two of probably the 10 to 12 most talented rosters in college basketball in LSU and Texas Tech. LSU, first of all, say what you want about Will Wade, the man knows how to accumulate talent. I'm not going to infer how he does it, but I'm just saying The guy has a talented roster. For people who do not remember, LSU, huge winner at the draft deadline. Javante Smart, Trendon Watford, and Darius Days all come back. I would argue Trendon Watford might be the favorite for SEC Player of the Year this year. They have a top 10 recruiting class. They have a kid named Cam Thomas, who's a volume scoring wing that some people believe could be SEC Freshman of the Year. I'd probably lean B.J. Boston, Terrence Clark. Um... And they have a couple big-time transfers, too. Never forget, Sharif O'Neal, Shaq's son, now at LSU. Josh LeBlanc, who played at Georgetown at LSU. LSU is a really, really, really talented team. Um, And Texas Tech is really talented. Texas Tech is a team, to me, that I think is one of the more underrated teams coming into next year. And the reason why is very simply this. Chris Beard loves to coach that aggressive man-to-man switching defense, one through five, uh, you know, what's the term, Uh, um, positionless basketball, right? And so when I look at Texas Tech, that is their whole team this year. Every guy on that roster basically is between 6'4 and 6'8, can play multiple positions, can switch, can defend, can score, is athletic. The names you need to know, Kevin McCuller, who was their point guard at the end of last year, really good player who came on strong. TJ Shannon, a guy that a lot of people believe has NBA draft potential, first round potential coming into this year. Joel and Tomway, for people who will remember, he's actually Jonathan Kaminga's older brother, Marcus Santos Silva, the transfer from VCU. And there's a chance that um, 
that Mac McClung will be eligible for them. But I just think these are two insanely talented teams, and I think that's a really fun matchup. Really quick, other two matchups that I want I want you to keep an eye on. One, uh, Arkansas Oklahoma State. I, I I was talking to some. I was on Arkansas radio on Wednesday. Arkansas fans don't seem particularly excited about this one. I guess Oklahoma State's kind of a, a team that they've played a lot in the past. But all I'll say is that um, all I will say is that this could be a fun matchup because I think Arkansas is really good. And Oklahoma State has a kid named Cade Cunningham, who you may have heard me talk about. He was the number one high school prospect in America last year and a player that I genuinely believe is going to be the number one pick in the draft next year. So I think Arkansas, that will be a fun game in my eyes, although it seems as though Arkansas fans are not particularly excited about it. And finally, Alabama-Oklahoma. Alabama's going to be fun. They play really fast, shoot a lot of threes. They were the leading um, three-point shooting team in the SEC, the leading scoring team in the SEC. But they did have an injury this week. They lost one of their freshmen, but I think they're going to be really good. Javon Quinterly, their point guard. John Petty is back for a final season. And I think Alabama's going to be really good. So that's going to be a fun matchup. Oklahoma, not going to lie. They're not the sexiest, funnest team to talk about. But they would have made their seventh NCAA tournament in eight years last year, so that should be a fun matchup. Those are the matchups to watch. Kentucky and Texas, Tennessee, Kansas, Texas Tech, LSU, Alabama, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Oklahoma State. All right, let's uh, really quickly transition to some football because I wasn't even planning on really talking college basketball today, and then the Olivier Sar stuff happened. And it's a great week for college football too. And it's a great week for college football Because the Big Ten is back, baby. And I know I said this on Monday's episode, but it is so crazy to me how far we have come in this Big Ten conversation. And I'll talk with Cole Kublik about it momentarily, but it's just crazy because I think back to everything that happened in August, canceling the season, Kevin Warren, the commissioner, getting up on that podium and saying, we are not revisiting this. We are not playing in the fall. We'll play at the earliest in January of 2021, if at all. And for us to come full circle with the player protests, with the parent protests, with the uh, you know lawsuits, whatever, and here we are with the Big Ten. And here we are not only with the Big Ten returning, but with the Big Ten returning this weekend. And I remember even in early to mid-September when they announced that they would come back, October 23rd and 24th felt like a lifetime away, yet here we are. And so in terms of the games to watch this weekend, I'll just be real with you. There's two that really jump out. I'm not going to break down all, uh, all, I guess it would be seven Big Ten games. If you want the detailed breakdown of Iowa-Purdue, you didn't come to the right place, okay? You want the detailed breakdown of Illinois, Wisconsin? Probably not the right place. But two games that really stand out. The first one, Nebraska, Ohio State. And it's been kind of interesting these last couple days because it appears as though these two schools are kind of kindred spirits in terms of them pushing for college football this fall. I thought it was really interesting. Scott Frost said on a conference call Wednesday that basically he will be rooting for Ohio State the rest of the season in every game except for this one because he feels as though without Ohio State there would not be a Big Ten football season. And I also give Scott Frost a ton of credit. I talked about it on this show on Monday, but you know Nebraska is coming off a 5-7 and seven season. It was disappointing by 
every measure imaginable. And I think it would have been easy for Scott Frost to kind of hide in the background, kind of say, you know what, we're just going to sit this one out. We'll let big, we'll let Ohio State and Penn State and Michigan fight for this season. But if we don't play this season, it's not the worst thing for us. And instead, Scott Frost was at the forefront fighting to play this season. So I give him a ton of credit. Uh, I also feel like the Big Ten kind of came after Scott Frost because they got Ohio State and Wisconsin to open the season. So with, the, with that said, let's talk really quickly about this game. And for me, it comes down to two things. First of all, Nebraska's not going to win. But what I'm just curious about is two things. First of all, the Nebraska quarterback, Adrian Martinez. If you remember back to last year, a lot of hype on Nebraska. I believe they went either 4-8 and eight or 5-7 and seven the year before. But they were ranked in the preseason top 25. And it was because of this quarterback, Adrian Martinez. Just one problem. He was a disaster. He was awful. He was terrible. And I looked it up to confirm 59% completion percentage, 10 touchdowns, 9 interceptions. Now, Nebraska fans will tell you, oh, he was hurt, blah, 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 whatever. I'm just telling you, he stunk. And so to me, I think tomorrow, I think Saturday, it's not about, it's not about Nebraska winning. I don't think they're going to win. But it is about being competitive. It is about showing improvement. And I think they should, if they are improved, be able to do it against this Ohio State defense. Because I think it's easy to sit there and say, oh, it's Ohio State and they recruited another level. And they do. But you also have to remember about Ohio State. Ohio State lost a lot off that defense, including two out of the top three picks in the NFL draft. Chase Young, who is now with the Washington football team, and Jeffrey Akuda, who was with the Detroit Lions. Overall, Ohio State lost eight starters off that defense including two of the top three picks in the draft. And so it's not as though it's this unstoppable force of a defense. And if you're Nebraska, you want to show improvement. Now, I still think Ohio State wins. I probably will not be betting this game because I just want to see what we get from Nebraska's offense and also from Ohio State's defense. Is Ohio State a defense that is good enough to hang with Clemson and Alabama? That's really what I'm going to be looking for in this game because I know Justin Fields can ball. I know his receivers can play, but can they get enough from that defense to compete with the Clemson and Alabamas? That's what I'll be watching in this game. Second game, that's really kind of worth watching. Michigan at Minnesota. <laughs> and I know it, it's a, it'd be easy for a lot of you to sit there and think to yourselves, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, like what are you talking about? Well, it goes back to what I told you last episode. P.J. Fleck, he's rowing that boat, baby. He is rowing that boat down whatever the river is in Minnesota. I don't even know. I know St. Paul and Minneapolis. Maybe, maybe he's rowing it down a lake because it's the land of 10,000 lakes. He's rowing something somewhere. That's all I know. Ten wins last year. As I said on the show, it was just the second time since 1905 that they got ten wins. And I know it's easy to kind of make fun of P.J. Fleck and criticize him and whatever. Dude's a baller, man. Dude's a gamer. And so I think when you have that Minnesota team with Tanner Morgan back, with Rashad Bateman back, Going up against Michigan, Michigan's got some questions now. Now, as I said last episode, Michigan's offense really did pick things up late in the season, but they lose their quarterback, Shea Patterson. They lose three of their top four receivers, including a kid named Nico Collins who opted out of this season. And they lost basically their entire offensive line. And so I'm just not sold that Michigan is going to pick things up where they left off in terms of that offense kind of humming. And if they're not, 
Is Minnesota a team that can, in theory, pull an upset? Michigan is a slight favorite at home on the road, but I think if Minnesota, uh, if Minnesota wins, I wouldn't be shocked. If anything, I would probably lean towards the under, but I probably will not be betting this game either. Uh, that's going to be it for the Big Ten. Not going to lie. Like I said, if you want that Northwestern, if you want the hard-hitting Northwestern Maryland breakdown, there's probably a good Northwestern podcast for you or the Rutgers-Michigan State breakdown. Listen, there's got to be a Rutgers football podcast somewhere, right? We're going to stay away. We're going to move on to the SEC. couple big games in the SEC we're talking about. Again, don't know if I'll be betting any of them, but the first one is obviously Tennessee-Alabama. Uh, <laughs> and shout out to Tennessee because two weeks ago, they look like they were ready to take over the world. Eight straight wins. Now they're coming off a second straight embarrassing loss. They fired their defensive line coach, and according to Kentucky Sports Radio, they fired him at halftime of the Kentucky game. And so this is a program that's reeling. And I guess where I look at Tennessee, what I'm trying to figure out, it's easy to just bury Tennessee and say, it's over, they stink, they were overrated, they were never that good. Let's not forget, like, they were up at halftime against Georgia. It's not as though they are quite as bad as maybe that that Kentucky game made them look. And so to me, I'm just having trouble wrapping my head around and thinking about, are they really, really, really that bad? Now, it's almost like the Nebraska-Ohio State game. Tennessee is not going to beat Alabama. What I'm just curious about is, can they remain competitive? Can that offensive line get back to looking like an elite offensive line? Can the quarterback not turn the ball over a bunch? I don't know. Alabama wins, but I do think that to me, what this game comes down to is for Tennessee, it's about respectability. It's not about can you win this game. It's not about pulling off the upset. It is about just just finding some respectability because it really wasn't that long ago that we were all pretty excited about Tennessee. And I do think with them having a bye week next week, I do think that it's a good opportunity for them to go in with some positive momentum. We will see if they can do that. Uh, two other SEC games, Missouri, Kentucky. This is a huge stay away to me because it's just such a contrast in styles. Kentucky is about running the ball, about establishing the line of scrimmage, about controlling the clock. Missouri just wants to get up and down the field, score a bunch of points. And so I think Kentucky is able to run the ball at will. The question is, can they slow down Missouri? I think they do. I would lean Kentucky minus five and a half. Won't be betting this one. And I definitely will not be betting LSU South Carolina. Uh, LSU's defense is horrible. And they're also now playing their backup quarterback because Miles Brennan is hurt. I thought if Miles Brennan played, I probably would have leaned LSU. But this one will be a stay away. In terms of betting picks, so I'll be honest, I've been running around all day. I haven't had time to officially formulate my betting picks. I will tell you there's three games off the top of my head that I do love. And I'll just be honest, they're not the sexiest picks, but you come here for winners. Last week was a little tough, but I should mention five straight winning weeks to start the season. I'm going to get back on track this week. Here are my three picks, and the rest of them will go up at AaronTorresOnline.com. So if you want to see them all Thursday morning, AaronTorresOnline.com. The three picks that I like. Friday night, Big Ten opener, Wisconsin, Illinois. Um, I like the under in this one, and it's 51 and a half, and I'll tell you what. Wisconsin plays ridiculous defense. If you remember last year, there was a conversation at the beginning of the season that Wisconsin had one of the great defenses in the history of the sport. In four of their first six games, Wisconsin shut out the opponent. 
Now, I'm not saying, as it turned out, they weren't that good, right? But if you look at their defense from last year, number four overall in total defense, and they gave up 13 points per game in games where they did not play Ohio State. They played Ohio State twice. Those numbers go way up. But against everybody other than Ohio State, they basically shut them down. I like Wisconsin in the under in this game. They're going to have a backup quarterback. Jonathan Taylor's with the Indianapolis Colts. And so because of it, the under is the play in that game. Speaking of under, under in the Kansas-Kansas State game Saturday morning. I know these aren't the sexiest picks. I just hand out winners. Sorry. Deal with it. Uh, uh, Kansas-Kansas State. Kansas' best player opted out of the season this week. Not great, especially for probably the worst team in Power 5 football. Kansas State's quarterback uh, was lost to the season with injury. I think Kansas State's defense shuts down Kansas, and I think offensively, they just really try to limit what they do. They're not going for anything crazy. This line has dropped perpe- It's dropped huge. It was at 53.5. It was down to 49.5 as I record here. I would get in on that, and I should remind you, if you want to bet, mybookie.ag promo code Torres, they'll double your sign-up bonus, even if you want to bet something else. They'll double your sign-up, so you bet you want to bet 50 bucks on Bama this week against Tennessee, they will give you 100 to play with. Use the promo code Torres. All right, final bet. This one's a little more fun. SMU against Cincinnati. I do like SMU. Uh, SMU is a two-and-a-half-point favorite at home, and really what this game comes down to for me is this. It's almost like a Georgia-Alabama type game in that Cincinnati is great defensively, but they are really, really, really limited offensively. And so because of it, when I look at this game, I just see a team in SMU that I think they're just going to be able to break off a few more plays, whereas I think Cincinnati, they're not built to get into high-scoring matchups, and their, their, their quarterback play is erratic. Their quarterback, Desmond Ritter, is completing 60% of his passes. They've struggled to move the ball against way worse teams than SMU, so I love SMU minus 2.5. I'd add this. Not an official pick yet. I do think Louisville minus 4.5 against Florida State at home. Listen, Florida State upsets North Carolina. Great story, blah, 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 blah. What I would say, though, is if you watch the game... Florida State didn't score a single point in the second half. North Carolina had over almost 600 yards of total offense and had no business losing that game. So I do lean Louisville in that game. That is not an official pick. Do with those picks as you please. All right, final topic before we get out of here, before we get to Cole Kublin. Did you see this Odell Beckham story? First of all, shout out to Odell Beckham, who may have had the quote of the century on, um, on Wednesday. He was asked about, if you remember last week, he had uh, symptoms relating to COVID. And so he was asked about COVID today. This is not why I'm bringing up Odell. I'll get to him in a minute. But Odell was asked about COVID and he said, I don't think it's going to enter this body. I don't want no parts of it. It don't want no parts of me. I think it's mutual respect. I feel like it was the right thing to do to mention I may not be feeling well. I just wouldn't want it to spread throughout the building if that was the case I possibly had. What Odell just said was, COVID don't want no part of me, and I don't want no part of COVID. So shout out to Odell, but that's not why I bring him up. I bring him up because, do you remember in the national championship game when Odell was on the money, was on the field, handing out money to LSU players after they won the national championship against Clemson? Remember how that felt like kind of a big deal? Remember how that felt like kind of an NCAA violation? Remember how 
LSU tried to claim, oh, no, 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 no. It was fake money. It wasn't real money. It was fake money. I mean, I believed him. How could you not believe LSU? Why would Odell be walking around with real money when he could just have fake money? Well, as it turns out, it was real money, and LSU imposed some sanctions today. And first of all, I just want to say this. If we can't believe that Odell had fake money, what can we believe in this crazy world? But LSU, as part of an investigation into their program, LSU basically admitted to some stuff, and they imposed some violations and or imposed some sanctions on themselves. And one of the sanctions that they imposed had to do with Odell, where basically he is not going to be allowed into the facility for, uh, for two years. I think it's really interesting. First of all, like I said, it, it, I thought it was fake money. I've been duped. Can't believe that it's not real money. Can't believe it's real money. Also, on top of that, I find it real. This is the really interesting part that nobody's talking about. Odell handed out money to two players on the field. Well, three players. Joe Burrow, whose eligibility ran out. Justin Jefferson, who's now with the Minnesota Vikings, his eligibility ran out. And a third guy, I got to look up this guy's name. I can't even remember this guy's name. I got I, I it written down. I can't even remember this guy's name. Something Kirksey or Javon Kirksey or something like that. Um, he, he was LSU's, he had two catches last year. So LSU just banned OBJ essentially over a guy that had two catches last year. Can you imagine being Ed Orgeron walking around in that office saying to yourself, we're, we just got screwed because of a dude that had two catches, two catches. He's the ninth leading receiver on this year's team. I can't even find his name. I can't believe it. All this over the ninth leading receiver. And here's the other funny part. Does anyone actually believe that OBJ is really banned from the facility? I mean, think about it. Like, if OBJ gets banned, imagine being being the security guard trying to tell OBJ, sorry, you can't walk into the football facility. Imagine being that minimum security guard, working hard, trying to make a living in this crazy pandemic world. OBJ walks up, sorry, Mr. Beckham, can't allow you. Uh, What are we doing here? So I thought it was a funny story. I thought it was fake money. They told me it wasn't fake money. Now this poor security guard has to, uh, you know, has to protect the sanctity of LSU football because OBJ was handing out real money on the field after Clemson. All right. <laughs> I think that's it for this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I appreciate you guys listening. Really fun segment, really fun interview. And speaking of which, really fun interview coming up with Cole Kublick, ESPN, SEC Network. And if you remember, Cole Kublick, as I said, was on this show in July. I remember recording with him, I believe it was the opening night of baseball season, Yankees Nationals. And in that interview, he and I got a little sidetracked and we basically became kindred spirits because we realized we were two of the guys fighting hardest for college football. At a time when we weren't sure if college football was going to happen, Cole and I were just fighting the fight to get this done. And so, yeah, with the Big Ten coming back, we kind of took a victory lap this week. We talk a lot about Cole's experience. Cole, of course, has been on the sidelines. He was on the sidelines last week in Knoxville for the Tennessee game. I believe he was at uh, Kroger Field for the Kentucky-Mississippi State game. But Cole Kublick, such a great wealth of knowledge. He talks about what it's like to be in the stadium in this COVID world. He talks about... 
Um, you know, he talks about uh, all sorts of stuff. And it's just a really fun interview. He's a really candid guy. He's really open. And, of course, we talk a little college football as well. Can anybody actually catch Bama and Clemson? So that's it for this segment. I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, and if you're not subscribed, what are you doing? Make sure to subscribe. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have a pod, if you have a, an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Uh, all that good stuff. Uh, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for this segment. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. And now from ESPN and the SEC Network, here is Cole Cuban. All right, joining me via Zoom, uh, the host of the three-man front down in Alabama, SEC Network, SEC, uh, Serious SEC. And the last time I had this guy on, Cole Kublik, I looked it up, July 27th, 2020. Um, a lot going on in the world at that time. College football, <laughs> we weren't sure if college football was one of them. What's up, man? How you doing? A lot less going on in the world. There was no baseball, no NBA. There was no uh, college football in sight. There was no NFL. In sight. I mean, we had we had nothing going on at that point except a bunch of people that were telling us that we were crazy for thinking we might play some tackle football this year. But uh, guess what? We got it. So I think I just finished up my either sixth or seventh straight week on on a sideline for a live tackle football game, which has been unbelievable. It's been different. It's been weird. Uh, it, it has been uh, obviously just odd at times, but it's also been so refreshing. Uh, I've been so grateful to be there, whether it was Ames, Iowa, whether it was at Coastal Carolina, whether it's been in the SEC, Auburn, Lexington, Knoxville, um, you know, whether it was Memphis, it's, it's been just a blast. I mean, hell, I did a high school game in Mobile, Alabama. It was incredible. So um, I love the fact that we're getting it. There's obviously been some, some obstacles, some hurdles. Um, they, uh, we'll, I think these leagues have an understanding of how to work around them. And we're going we're gonna to keep pushing through. And, and hopefully we can wrap this thing up with some postseason college football as well. Well, first of all, we're going to wrap it up. That's the thing that cracks me up is like last week when the Nick Saban stuff had, well, what is the SEC going to do? Well, I don't know. They're going to keep playing because guess what? If Army's playing and Air Force is playing and Middle Tennessee is playing, the SEC is going to yep. keep playing too. Uh, Big Ten's back this weekend. Mountain West is back this weekend. But real quick, you know, you mentioned being on the sidelines and all that stuff. For, for those of us who haven't had the chance to be in the stadium yet, obviously – it looks different on TV and all that stuff. What is it like to actually be in the stadiums for all these games? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it was a little surreal at first. The, the first game I did, first college game I did was at Memphis, and I think they capped it at just over 4,500 people. And I, I think, Aaron, we all sort of developed this, this, this picture of what it would be like, we, this, this sort of 
this mental portrait of this cavernous stadium with no sound and we would hear every play call and all the pads cracking and just 4,500 people I felt like made a huge difference that night because it gave you some reaction. It gave you a little bit of momentum swings one way or the other. Uh, and then I go to Ames, Iowa, and it's literally family and the band. But they did a really nice job on the visitor sideline of taking the dance team, the cheerleaders, the band, you know, the, the color guard, and they, they, they spread them out goal line to goal line. So that bottom section from the goal line to the goal line, it didn't feel empty. And it, it, you still got a little bit of reaction, which was good. And it's kind of gone up and up since then. Auburn and Alan Green did an excellent job the way that they spread out their 17,500, which I thought was really smart because when we were at Coastal Carolina, everyone was social distanced, but they were kind of in one third of the stadium. So when you got to the other side of the field, it was nothing. But it was, it was actually, you know, pretty exciting when you got to the other side of the field. But when Auburn sort of spread it out, I felt like it was better. A lot of people focused on the optics of it. I'm like, man, this is going to look cool. This is going to be great. And I was like, no, you don't understand. The sound is what's going to be good because it's actually going to feel like a real game because it won't be concentrated to one small section of the stadium. It ended up being pretty good. And they let all the students in for the first game too, which is pretty cool. Uh, so to make sure they got to go to a game. And obviously they're a little bit more lively than probably regular fans would be. So, you know, I was in Knoxville last week. Now, I will say, Neyland Stadium with 20,000 people, it feels very empty because that's a big stadium. But you still got some reaction. You still got, you know, decent crowd involved. And, and it's been, you know, wearing a mask on the sideline is, is not my favorite thing. But I'm going to do what I got to do to work. And I don't mind doing it because I want to be on the sideline. I want to be covering games. And I think people forget you have multiple protocols that you're going to follow. I have Disney protocol. I have Southeastern Conference protocol. And then I have the school's protocol. Um, I had the American Conference protocol. And then whatever school I'm at, whether it's Vanderbilt, Auburn, Kentucky, Tennessee, Memphis, Coastal Carolina, they, have, they all have their own protocol, even past what their conferences have. So we, you have to make sure you're covered in all of those. And they've been a little bit different everywhere I've been because obviously some of that's going to be governed by the local government and, and, and the, the local whatever laws and you know, protocols that they have in place, be it the school or the city. So it's been, it's been odd. Technically, it's been challenging. Gathering information has been a little bit challenging for me because right before the game, I'm usually out on the field talking to coaches and getting really good information. I'm not allowed to step on the field at any time right now. Um, but, man, it's been fun just being there. It's, you know, it's, I mean, Tom and Jordan, the two guys I do games with, they're not on site either. Um, that's I mean, right. That's my, that's my work family. So, you know, we're not going to dinner on Friday night. We're not sitting around watching games on Saturday. We're not going to the gym and talking and talking about football and what we see, what we like, what we don't like. We still have meetings and we still obviously prepare, but it's just different. And um, I, I don't care because I'm just glad that we have it. And, and I'm glad we're doing it. And I think it's been great so far. You know, you talk about the protocols, and this was something else that I, one of the reasons I really want to have you on. You know, you and I were. Uh, at the forefront, I don't know if we were the first ones to officially say it, but we were kind of leading the charge of the safest place these kids can be is in the facilities with their medical staff, with the coaches, all that stuff. And now that we've got three, four, five weeks in the SEC, six, seven weeks, other places, that narrative seems at least to me to be getting out a little bit more of the concerns are, you know, what we what we talked about before when when does class start are kids going to in-person classes everything remote 
I heard Joel Klatt say it this week of a lot of coaches are concerned actually when parents come to campus and want to just take, you know, their son out to dinner or whatever after the game. Just in your experience, I mean, it was easy for us to say back in July, oh, the safest place these kids can be is in that facility. But, you know, without naming any school specifically, I mean, is that what you're finding is that as much as when I was talking to people on the phone in July and August, it sounded good. Now that I'm seeing it in person, it's even another level than I thought it would be. That's 100 percent real. And, and there are multiple aspects of what you just said that are real. And I, I won't name I won't name schools or, or players or or programs. But the part about the families, I know for a fact is real because I've dealt with that. Uh, I've had conversations with coaches, with teams that I've been covering and, and teams that I might cover and coaches that I know in certain leagues. And there have been multiple instances of players with families and then players and teammates with one family either going out to eat or hanging out or everybody coming to the apartment after the game. And that's been a problem. Hmm. Um, you know, bringing those people to campus, to the apartments, uh, sometimes outside the facility being around other people has, has been an issue that, that has, that has caused some problems. Traveling just in general has caused some problems. That's one thing that's going to be very difficult because like you just said, you're not in that facility and you're not around the medical professionals every day. I, I think, I don't think we've given enough credit yes. to just the average college football player and, and how hard this is to just go home and just go to your apartment and go, just go to the facility and then go back. Um, Saturday nights have been a massive concern for the college coaches I've talked to. And you think about I mean, it, th think about it as a human being, whether think about it if you've ever tried to lose weight. I mean, you, you go three weeks, four weeks, a month, two months, whatever it is. And it's like, you get on that scale and you get to 230, 250, whatever it was you wanted to get to. What's the first thing on your mind? I'm going to get a pizza. Yeah. I'm going to get some donuts. I'm, I want some Kit Kats, whatever it is. That's, you want that reward. Well, you go through fall camp, you go through a couple of weeks of practice, you go play a game, you go win a game. Hell, even if you don't win it, you're, you finish and you're thinking, it's that giant sigh of relief. Like, we made it, man. Like, we, mm -hmm. we just did that. It's, we're all good. You get around some friends, you get around your girlfriend, she's been around other people, your family comes in, you hang around with your teammates, families, whatever it is. That's a big problem. And it's very easy, I think, for these young men to let their guard down after games and most of them have done a really nice job of it. Now, it doesn't mean that there hasn't been issues. There hasn't been hurdles. There are a couple of schools out there, Aaron, that just – they don't feel like that they, can, they can cross the hump. Like, they can't get over the hill. Sure. Like, this is, a, this is a mountain that they just – they can't find a way to scale it. Um, and they're still dealing with it now. And they've had multiple games canceled. And, and, and some of the teams that are still dealing with it now are teams that you and I were talking about the last time I was on that, man, they got a problem and something's going on. And they're going to have to – they're going to have to shut things down or they're going to have to slow down or they might not be able to go. And those are the ones that I, I would, I would kind of, I mean, if I was going to have questions about anything, I would ask the questions of why they haven't been able to sort of, you know, get to the top of that mountain and, and cross that speed bump and, and sort of figure it out. But I mean, we had North Carolina shut things down. You know, Syracuse had to shut things down. Florida state, Notre Dame, they're all playing. They're all good. They're all going. They figured it out, you know, and so um, I, I just I, I think we need to understand that this has not been easy on these players. It's been a big sacrifice. Yes, it's a gigantic reward to be able to go out and play these games. I get that. I understand it. But 
it's, it's not been an easy task to do the things that they've been asked to do. So I think they deserve a ton of credit. And obviously the coaches and, and the medical staffs and everybody who's assisting them in that, they deserve credit as well. Well, and I don't want to harp on the negative because I think there's been so much positive here, but I do think that's an important point to discuss is that like the mental anxiety that these coaches, you know, the players too, but every day, you know, I heard Justin Fuente talking about it of he thought he had the full, you know, whatever defensive backfield and then he doesn't. Even Nick Saban last week, uh, as emotional as he'll ever get, kind of talking about how his players really rallied when he didn't think that he was going to be there. And like, I've talked about it on this show, uh, you know, on, on, on previous episodes is like, I don't think the average fan understands the mental anguish, anxiety of just coming to, I forget who I was talking to about this, but of just coming to the facility every day and just being on pins and needles of, did this person test positive? Is this position group wiped out? You know, I, I mentioned Virginia Tech. They're playing walk-ons in the defensive backfield because that's all they're down to. Is this assistant coach not – you know, like, I don't want to focus on the negative, but I do feel like that isn't being talked about enough of, like, what these teams have to go through, not only on a weekly basis to play on Saturday, but as you just said, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, showing up having no idea who's going to test positive and who's going to test negative. We've talked to a couple of different coaches um, leading in the games that we were going to cover. And just imagine that you're sitting around. We, we talked to one head coach that was telling us they were, they were sitting there Friday morning awaiting test results before they went to travel. And if there were three or four or five that came back positive, they would not go on the trip with them to where they were going to go play on the road. So say you have three offensive linemen, two safeties, um, you know, two running backs, and now you got to go get on that plane and go play in 24 hours. So, yeah, that, that part of stuff, I, I think where, where a team like Alabama, who has decided to kind of go with the, the daily testing, and if you talk to some medical professionals, you know, they'll tell you that there's, I think, an 18% false positive rate on that. So, but I think what it does is it kind of helps get past what you just mentioned, that, that mental hurdle, that mental – it becomes routine. So you're not, you're not sitting around every day going, oh, my, it's positive, negative, positive, negative. You know, you're just kind of like, all right, we took a COVID test today. You know, it's just, it's just kind of – it's what we do. We do it every day. It's no big deal. Big 10 players, Pac-12 players will have that advantage. Uh, I do think that it can sort of help you make it more of just what you do every day. Football players are routine guys. And when you get out of that, when you change it, that's when mentally and emotionally things start to go a little bit haywire. So just make it a part of your everyday process. And I think that makes things a little bit easier. But there have been more coaches tell me this year that roster management is number one on the list of things that they have to do every day. We've, I've talked to two coaches that have told me, head coaches, that have told me they have roster meetings every day. Never done this before. Never done this before. And the staff gets together or they get together with the director of player personnel and they literally just go through, probably not going to have this guy. Chance we're not going to have this guy. If we don't have him, where do we go? And coaches are cross-training guys. You have safeties who are practicing at corner. Defensive ends practicing at defensive tackle. Centers and guards are practicing at tackle. Tackles are practicing at center. You know, tight ends are practicing at fullback. You, you, you got to be ready to say, okay, these four guys are out. We need to move this one over. 
or this this guy's got to come down on the depth chart. We, we got to we just got to figure it out. I mean, Malzahn told us before the Kentucky game that through six weeks of preseason practice, they didn't have the same offensive line for one week because of contact tracing. I mean, Tennessee's got a kid that got hit with contact tracing twice. He only practiced five times before the season started. So he's not – he's a sophomore. He's not ready to play. He's out there giving his best. But those are just the things that, that a lot of people, like you said, won't talk about that are having to be overcome, that are, that are having to be dealt with. And I don't think anybody's – no one – to clarify, no one's complaining about any of this. They're just letting us know this is, this is what it is. This is what yeah. we're dealing with this year. This is, this is real life. And so it's, it's impressive. It's frustrating to hear and I'm sure to go through. But every one of them would tell you that it's absolutely worth it to be able to get these games. No, 100%. And that's the only reason why I bring it up is because I don't think people understand on a day-to-day basis how much coaching staffs, players, trainers, whatever, having to go through. Uh, Big 10 this weekend, since since you and I last spoke, we went (laughs) – we don't know if there's going to be anything to Big 10 out, player safety in, can't play at all. Now we got the Big Ten back this weekend. They're playing an extra game at the end of the season, which I find hysterical because it's all about player safety, but we're just going to lop on an extra game that's meaningless on the last uh, weekend in December. As you look back on that era, that that magical, you know, six to eight-week stretch with Big Ten football, I mean, I'll never forget Kevin Warren on my TV. No disrespect. I'm just saying he, he was definitive. We are not revisiting this. Yeah. Here we are, Nebraska, Ohio State, new kicking off. I guess Wisconsin, Illinois technically kicks off the season on Friday. Uh, I, I think I think what you had was you had a lot of involvement in that decision. And I think I told you the last time that I was on with you, and I'll back it up and I'll say it again, the, the people who believe that, that Kevin Warren showed up to work that day and typed out an email to everybody in the conference saying, well, we're not going to do it. Like it was his decision to just make and and go with that's that's not real. Don't don't allow yourself to believe that. There was massive influence from very important individuals in in very important seats uh, across the geography of that conference that assisted, helped, swayed, uh, politicked, and pushed to have that decision made. And I I think there was also a race to be first. Sure. And that turned that turned out to be a, a bad decision. Let's just say it now, call it what it is. And I know that there was there was an effort to to attempt to recruit other conferences to join them in that decision. And the other conferences said, no, there's no need to make this decision now. We can wait and make the same decision and there's no harm done. And that turned out to be the right move. Um, you know, Swafford and, and Sankey and Bowlesby, they they made the right move. They sat back and said, why not wait? Why not see? Because this thing seems like it's changing every day, so maybe it'll change for the good. And they did. Um, I don't have as good of information as to how it got back sure. and what, were, what, the, what the percentage of influence was as to what allowed it to reoccur and show up again. I'm damn happy that it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I get to watch a kid like Wyatt Davis play guard for Ohio State this year. Uh, I'm happy that I get to see, uh, you know, Tanner Morgan go out and be one of the most efficient quarterbacks in college football again, see if P.J. Fleck can have that team in contention for a playoff spot maybe. 
You know, I want to see what James Franklin can do with what he has back on offense, even if no Journey Brown. I think they could be a, a real contender. So, and here's the other part of just kind of a sidebar, the Big Ten, the Pac-12 coming back. There's going to be spots open, man. I mean, this is Alabama-Clemson in a massive gap right now. Massive gap between everybody else. So, you're looking at two spots that are there and going to be there. So, how everything's looked at from schedule, amount of games, record, resume, winning a conference, I think that's all going to be way different this year than every other year. So, if there are two legitimate spots open, because I personally think, I mean, my, it's just my opinion. I think the Big 12's out. I know what Oklahoma State's done. I know they're undefeated, but I look what's left, and I just don't have faith that they'll run the table. And even if they do run the table, is that resume going to be strong enough? Are there going to be enough really good teams in that league to sit back and say, oh, yeah, definitely one of the four best teams. You should be in. I mean, you could do like you did Oklahoma last year and just say, well, you won the conference, and who else are we putting in? And they get in. Because I thought Florida was a better team than Oklahoma was at that point last year. So there will be spots open, which makes this thing so much more intriguing, so much more fun. Uh, I'm glad. I don't know if it was the parents. I don't know if it was the players. I don't know if it was somebody from the government level. Hell, I don't know if it was the president. But it feels like a lot of people were pushing and something happened, and now we're getting it back. And I'm just glad that we're getting it back. For those players like Justin Fields that you know want to go out there and play and are, are going on Good Morning America and they're are tweeting things out, I think it's awesome for them. Because one thing, one other thing that a lot of people don't understand is the amount of work that goes into 10, 12, 6, 15 rewards that you get as a college football player. And these kids have put in the work, and they deserve those rewards. And, and now, thankfully, they're going to get them. Pac-12 is going to get a little less. Big Ten is not going to get as many as some others. But they're still going to get them, and that's a good thing. Well, and I think that speaks to the stuff that you and I talked about last time about, you know, at the time, even more so than now, there was this narrative of, oh, guys don't want to play and this and that and the other thing. And you have Justin Fields, as you said, going on national TV starting petitions. But I think even just somebody like Rondale Moore, Rashad Bateman um, opting out and then opting back into the season. Massive. Yeah, like it's being like, I'm one of these guys, Cole, you know, we've known each other for a while, like, because I'm on these campuses, um, I know that this narrative out there of these poor kids are so exploited and life is so hard, like, I just know one, it's not true, but then two is competitive. (laughs) Like it's not, it's not true. And it it does drive me crazy. But, you know, I I thought that was a great moment in time in its own right for college football. And there were guys that decided not to play Micah Parsons. And, you know, there were, there were guys that, you know, Jamar Chase that said, you know, I'm good. And, you know, maybe Jamar Chase knew some things about LSU that, that none of us knew. (laughs) But, you know, I, I just thought that was a great moment for college football too, of these guys that, frankly, didn't need to play another game, didn't need anything on the college level to help their draft stock saying, I want to be part of this team. As you said, I want to be with my guys for 8, 10, 12 more weekends and get that reward at the end of all of it. I think all of that, and and, and I'm bummed that we're not going to see Panay Sewell play. Am I bummed that I don't get Micah Parsons and Jamar Chase? Absolutely. It's fun watching those guys play. And I was really anxious to see if Oregon could contend not only in the Pac-12, but maybe for that playoff spot that they were close to last year. And, um, you know, I kind of look at, look at them like I do LSU and kind of like I look at A&M, who's a team that has, has the schedule to really kind of get back in the mix. But 
I look at them and say, man, if their opt-outs were there, whew, this thing could really be different, like really be different. Um, but it, that was that was fantastic. I mean, those, those are guys that, that are going to be early draft picks and have a ton on the line, a ton of money on the line. But that shows you what college football means right there. I mean, when you get two first-round picks from Ohio State, say, we're out, and kind of you could kind of tell they did it because they felt like they had to, because they didn't know what was going on. And then immediately, we're going to do what we need to do to get back in, 100%. And, you know, Bateman had been out for a while and then probably sitting there saying, oh, I get to, I get to go run with those guys again? Let's do it. Figure it out. What do I need to do? And they made, and they made it happen. I, I will say this. I'm, I hadn't heard much from the old, um, you know, the old Fair Play Act hashtag <laughs> out in the time 12. You know? Um, yeah, go ahead. I mean, are they going to play? Because I mean, because they, they well hold on they weren't gonna play when they thought they were gonna play, and now they're gonna play, but I don't know if they're gonna play. So a ah. c- c- couple things. First of all, I, I don't know how that rev split uh, worked out in the in the Pac-12. I'm guessing not too well. Um, it's really funny. I was literally on the phone with my mom right before we we you and I hopped on. And uh, she was asking me, she's like, so did they have to sign a waiver or anything? I'm like, yeah, I think that waiver stuff, maybe they had to sign something. But I was like, I think that waiver stuff was, you know, back in early August when, uh, you know, the the narrative was a little bit different. But, dude, you know how I feel. Um, I I don't know where to take that. I don't know where to take it. I I just, uh, you know. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. I mean, it it felt like it felt like that uh, that hammer hit the gavel pretty hard. And it was no. We will, we will sit this out, and then you got, you know, you got a Jake Bentley, and you got a couple other guys came out and said, oh, no, no, it's really cool what you're doing, but we're going to play football. Yeah. Um, we support you and wish you the best. I'll be practicing and playing. Mm-hmm. So have well, fun with it, but we're going to go play games. I'm just – I'm interested in, in, in that portion of that league now when you said – definitively you you would boycott or sit out or not play until your demands were met we haven't gotten clarification that your demands were met so why has the why is the other part of that gone away magically all of a sudden i just it's interesting two things one this speaks to something that i i talk about all the time which drives me crazy is that we have adults pontificating on tv and radio and whatever on what's best for kids that and you know the people that are the loudest about the kids are getting exploited are the the people that don't do what you and i do don't talk to people in the industry aren't on campus don't see what the weight facility looks like don't see what the rehab table looks like like don't see what uh oh by the way these poor student athletes don't get paid yeah they do it's called the cost of attendance check they all get one even the women's soccer team, like, you know, and so that's one. Um, And I just, you know, it's just, I I don't know what to say, man. I don't know what to say. It was a weird moment in time. And, you know, I don't know what you've heard on the road. I know you can't say it here, but I did think it was pretty interesting that the the two conferences that were by far the most vocal, the Big Ten and the Pac-12, they were the ones that were kind of treading their wheels. And the Mountain West, too. By the way, the Mountain West, how about them? They came out of left field and were like, yeah, we're not going to play either. And it's like, sit down, backup linebacker at UNLV. (laughs) No one cares. Stop. What are you doing? So I don't know what it all means in the big picture. Oh, I remember what I was going to say my second point. 
I thought it, I, I, I don't want to make light of a serious situation, but everyone was saying, oh, there's no, the players are finding their voices. There's never been a better time to speak up. I'm like, actually, this is literally the worst possible time that you could speak up uh, because I don't think you're getting 50-50 rev split or 40-60 or whatever it was when, in all honesty, people are losing their jobs and all that stuff. So that Athletic was, departments are crumbling. I know. I know. Not the best time. That's Not what I'm saying. Time. Not to mention, by the way, you know I live in Pac-12 country. Uh, Berkeley and Los Angeles and Palo Alto are like four of the most, three of the most expensive cities in freaking America to live in. And it's just, it, it never made sense. I, you can take this one wherever you want, but, but that shit kind of drove me crazy when it happened. So uh, anything else, season that you've seen, season that you want to see, like you said, I mean, I think to me, and I'll just say this in terms of on the field stuff, the most interesting narrative is, how does that playoff get divvied up in two different ways? I think one, something that I've been harping on for two or three weeks now, you know, the Big Ten has played up this big thing of, you know, we outsmarted everybody because we got all this daily testing. And I'm sitting here saying NFL's got daily testing. They're not getting in all their games. And, you know, I do wonder, even if Ohio State does everything right, what happens if Rutgers has an outbreak, Maryland, whatever, and I think that leads to me to like the biggest, most interesting question that comes out of this season is how do those four teams get picked and what are the criteria relative to the fact that do you uh, punish a, a Notre Dame that goes 10 and one or 10 and two or nine and two or whatever it is uh, over a, a seven and one Ohio State team when Notre Dame's been practicing and playing all along. So I don't know what you find interesting on the field, but that's kind of what I'm looking at is just trying to figure out how we pick out these four teams. No, I'm, I'm with you. I think, and like I said earlier, I, I, I just believe Alabama and Clemson are in. I, and I don't think there's, there's a, any sort of a, a big gap between those two. I think you can pick and choose your differences of, of strength and things that you like between the two, but I put them on a pedestal by themselves and then I move on. And who's next could be really intriguing because – and, and speaking to the maybe believing that you outsmarted everyone, with, with your contact tracing and positive test protocol that's in place, Big Ten fans need to understand that at this point in the season, so let's say three, four weeks in, if a Big Ten school was going through what Baylor's going through right now or what Florida's going through right now, there's a good chance that they're done that they would not play any more football the rest of that year. They're not going to have the bodies to be able to do it. And that's not to say physically wouldn't have them. They're not going to be allowed to have the bodies to step onto the field to be able to do it. So outsmarted, no. You, you didn't give yourself leeway. You didn't give yourself the flexibility that's going to be needed. Um, I mean, I, I had no doubts about how this season was going to finish until this past weekend and two SEC teams get post SEC games get postponed. And then the rest of the schedule has to be shifted around. I still think that they're going to finish and we will have a, a, a finish to the season, be it championship games in the conferences and a college football playoff. But I, it's only human nature to say, Oh man, like this, this is not the one that I thought could happen because everything seemed to be just moving so smoothly down this path through this season. But to not give yourself any leeway is it's almost asking for it. Yep. Because this thing can hit your team hard and nobody can, can have – no one could have been irresponsible in any way. It could be a total accident. And all of a sudden you could have 15, 18, 20 guys out 
and and in that deal they're going to be out for like three weeks mm. so and then what and then the people they come in contact with so i it's going to be interesting to see that part of it and the sec did a magnificent thing two fridays three two or three fridays ago and that's how that's how Saban was able to coach pga was doing this early on where you could test back in uh you know the, the champ guy was able to i think he tested positive on like a sunday or monday and then he goes negative 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 he flies out and he complete he competes mm. now the sec changed their rule where if you have an asymptomatic positive you can test back in which is three test 24 hours apart all negative boom you're back in which is the way i think it should be cdc recommends that so now you go symptomatic and all that's out the window it's done it's totally it's yeah i think you go immediate 10-day quarantine and the rules change but that actually gives the sec more freedom and more leeway and more flexibility to potentially get guys back so i don't know this committee is going to have to force themselves to look at so many things in a different way. They're gonna to have to look at rosters. They're gonna to have to look at consecutive weeks played. They're gonna to have to look at what fall camps were like. They're gonna to have to look at a loss, maybe not being normally what a loss would be. Sure. The resume's gotta be important. It always is, but more important now. The eyeball test, I think, if, it, if the eyeball test has been 60%, 40% of this deal before, it's gotta be 80% now. Because you just, you don't know what, and I don't mean these specifically, but you don't know what an A&M win over Florida really was unless you have information. And sure. you can really dive into those two programs and know people that were involved. Uh, you don't know what a Florida State win over North Carolina was unless you really know people and have spoken to people who can give you the information about availability. Uh, and not just availability for that game, but I've talked to coaches that had, players come out of protocol on a Wednesday hmm. and they get a Wednesday, Thursday practice, and then they go play that impacts your team that affects your team. So it, it's, I think it's easy to sit back and say, Oh, well, that should, I'll, that should let somebody else in. This is the best chance for them to get in. I disagree because look at what the ACC is going to play. The big 10 is going to play. The SEC is going to play. And for a team like BYU, no, you look at you. You look at that schedule, and you say, "I I don't see how that's going to be possible at all." You just there's zero name recognition there, and I'm not saying that's be the only reason that teams get in, but I think it's actually going to be more difficult for mm. a BYU, a Boise, you know, if if a Central Florida was was undefeated, I think it's I think it's going to be more difficult for them to get in because everything's going to be so much more difficult to evaluate that you're not just going to immediately prop up other teams that are sort of in the back of your mind. So it's going to be wild. I mean, Interesting. It's going to be really so wild. Quick, so you think, say, Notre Dame or Georgia or Texas A&M maybe as a second loss, and what you're going to sit back and say is, okay, well, A&M had this many guys opt out and they had this, you know, the, the week they lost to this team, you know, we had – that's what that's essentially what you're saying i think you have to have those conversations sure. absolutely and they didn't you didn't have to have those every other year you didn't sure. have to talk about opt-outs and guys that were in protocol and a player who got hit with contact tracing and didn't go through practice until thursday that week or only had five practices leading into the season and took him longer to develop and they lost early 
all of that has to be taken into consideration. So no, another, I just think that I, I think if you got two spots open and it's not clear, it's not an undefeated Pac-12 champion or an undefeated Ohio State, and maybe it's an undefeated Ohio State, Clemson, Bama, and three are easy, that four spot could be what we're talking about. And now you just you really got to do your due diligence. You really have to do your homework on how and why things happen because this year is going to be more different than any college football season we've ever discussed. No, and I think, you know, real quick, we'll get out of here is that, like, I think that was part of, like, the Dan Mullen thing a few weeks ago, which I had no problem with, which he's like, dude, they were at a major competitive advantage, and I know that A&M fans will say we were only at 25% capacity, whatever, it looked like a lot more, and he's like, he's just saying, I just want an even playing field, if we're allowed to have this many people in the stands, let's get this many people in the stands, so I think that's part of it, too, um, but anyway. That's all I got, Cole. You're the man, Cole Kublik. Uh, unless you got something else, you're, the floor is always yours, my man. You're never afraid. No, I'm, my only, my only thing with with the with the fans is, I'm I'm very protective of what we have right now. Sure. And because I I, I would like to maintain it, and I know most people in their right mind would like to maintain it. We should forego greed. Sure. To maintain what we have. And I feel like there are, and I'm not, this is not just Dan Mullen. This has been administrations at universities. This has been presidents, ADs, coaches. There are some folks that are, are kind of really getting their wheels spinning a little bit too fast. Hmm. And my thought, on, my thought on that would be, we have this right now. It's, it's, in, it's here. We've got it. We're going to have it. Is it worth the risk to lose it? And I don't think it is. I would rather have the games and protect everything around them than just say, oh, well, we're good. So let's open the floodgates. Let's go. What well, we, we played three games where I guess because I'm so protective of actually having these games, I think the other way on that. And, and I understand both sides of it. But my thought process would be, no, 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 no. Wait. Let's not, let's, let's not hit the gas on this. I mean – What's the, what is, what's the best thing that Greg Sankey has done through this entire deal? Have patience. Yeah. So just wait. It's, you're, you're not making your fiscal budget by allowing an extra 10,000 fans in your stands. You're not. I don't, yeah. care, I don't care if they each buy 3,700 Bud Lights at every game. That $50 million shortfall ain't going to be covered <laughs> by that. It's, just, it's not. Yeah. So pump, pump the brakes and let's just – my and I told you this the last time. Let's just do what we got to do to get these in. Yeah, and we'll figure it out later. Now, if you want to get to week week nine and ten, and you want to say, you know what, we're eighty seven thousand two hundred fourteen. Let's go. Come on in. Like we're this is the last game. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're trust me. A lot of those folks we talked about last time are going to be pointing some fingers, and and they're going to be mad. They're going to be big mad and how irresponsible you perceive to be, but go for it. I, I just think when you have this much left, I would be going out of my way to protect it as sure. opposed to, to potentially letting my guard down just a little bit. You know, it's, 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 the, it's the team that's scoring points that can't run the ball well that all of a sudden the fourth quarter starts trying to run the ball. You're sure. like, no, 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 dude, you're, you're not good enough to do that. Keep scoring. You have to, your defense is terrible. Score more points. Don't go four-minute offense. Put it in the end zone again. That, that's just me. That, that would be my mindset on this whole thing. 
No, it makes sense. And I think, I think last week, as you referenced earlier, it was an eye opener for everybody is that, and I'm Mr. Like, let's just push on and play, but it was an eye opener that we are uh, not as far along as we thought, but we're further along than we were, my man. Cole Kublik. Yeah. Got a roll. It's late. Uh, dude, I always appreciate you making time, my man. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Everyone loves hearing from you. The honesty, the uh, sincerity. So I appreciate it, and uh, we'll do it again soon, my man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. I enjoyed it. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.